Our scripture reading today is from the Song of Solomon, also known as the Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. My beloved spoke to me and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. And from 1 John 3.11, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Phil, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. Uh, thanks for reading the scripture, Phil, and... It's a very applicable scripture, except for one phrase doesn't apply to us, and that's the phrase, the rains have gone. <laughs> no, the rains will be gone in uh, August, so enjoy between now and then. But uh, let's pray together. It's the first time in my 34 years as a pastor I've preached through the Song of Solomon, and so we begin and learn together along the way. Please join me in prayer. Father, we'd like to thank you that we can gather Within these walls this morning, mindful that we live in a world of fear and in a world of broken relationships. And our prayer and hope, actually, is that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit in order that we might be people with the courage and vulnerability to receive love from you uh, so that having received that love, we may be healed, filled, transformed uh, to be the embodiment of love in our world for one another. Toward that end, teach us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I was a few years ago on a train in Germany, and as often happens on trains, the people uh, sitting across me at the table left, and a young woman uh, showed up at the table, and I really enjoy engaging in conversation on these trains, and so I began talking to this woman, probably in her mid to late 20s, single, uh, a student. She asked me where I was going. I told her I was going to visit my daughter. She said something that took me back. This is what she said. Oh, how nice that you have had the courage to have children. <laughs> wow. Don't hear that often. Very thoughtful young woman. And so we talked a little bit about her statement. And this is what she said. She said, you know, I, I don't have that kind of courage because I think that children need love more than anything else. And I don't know anyone able to give children the kind of love that they need. I don't know anyone able to give children the kind of love they need. So here's this woman. I don't think she's a Christ follower in any way, but without even having a Bible, she knows something intuitively that is true about the world, and that's that we live in a fallen world. And one of the ways that uh, the fall manifests itself in this world is we are desperately short on the kind of love that we all need. And it's that phrase, the kind of love we need which is what the book Song of Solomon is all about. Uh, the truth of the matter is that all of us are born into this vicious cycle of broken love. And so if you can follow with me here, I'll show you. Now, by the way, I didn't draw these things. This is cut and paste from the internet. So neither uh, criticize nor compliment me on these wonderful drawings, okay? Uh, but when we're born as children, we are vulnerable. We thrive in security. We're hungry for love. We're creating God's image, called to display God's character. But then as we grow older, uh, we begin to hear things that uh, diminish our self-worth and our capacity to receive love. Things like you're inadequate. Things like conform or pay the price. 
Uh, failure is not an option. These aren't necessarily said overtly, but they're said, right? Or if you're in, abu- in an abusive relationship, you exist for my pleasure. And all of these uh, uses of language are forms of abusive power in relationships. Uh, you know, I'm using you for my pleasure, for my ego, for my appetites. Um, it's your fault, you know, blaming. Uh, and you're headed for hell if you don't perform in a certain way. And to the extent that we hear these messages of performance and conditional uh, worth and control, uh, we grow up then with defense mechanisms and we put shields on and we become people then who have a, it's hard for us then to give the kind of love that others need because we ourselves now are defensive, right? We've been hurt and to the extent that we've been hurt, we put on this armor and now we become people who have a lust for power because power is safety and I want to be safe in my relationships. So if I'm up here and you're down here, then I'm safe. Uh, And we become then afraid of change, afraid of risk, afraid of vulnerability, afraid of being known, perhaps in our worst iterations, bitter, angry, and to the extent that that happens, we find ourselves in a cycle, right? We, we were born into not theological innocence, but we were born vulnerable, hungry for love, and we received imperfect love. This created defense mechanisms, uh, which we then pass on to the next generation. And this is why it says in Numbers that there's generational sin. The sins of the fathers are passed down uh, to to, uh, subsequent generations. And so the question on the table in our time together in the book of Song of Solomon is this. Like, how do we break this cycle? Is there any way that we can move and escape out of this cycle of broken love so that we can then become better lovers by having received a love that will heal and transform and liberate us? And of course, that's where uh, we go to the book of 1 John, and I'll just read a couple of verses in chapter 4. 1 John 4.10, don't you love this, right? Herein is love. In other words, I need this love. I've got to escape this vicious cycle. Herein is love, not that we loved God, We didn't, we're imperfect, but that he, God, loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then in verse 18 of 1 John 4, there is no fear in love, none, (laughs) but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. And so how do we escape the cycle of, of, of broken love? We escape the cycle by receiving perfect love. Where does that perfect love come from? It comes from Christ. This transforms our relationships, both horizontally with one another and vertically, of course, in our relationship with God. But it all starts with our relationship with God. And this ultimately is what the book Song of, Song, Song of Solomon is, is all about. Now, it's also about marriage. And so I'm just going to let you know here as we move into this, because as I look around, I see some younger folks in the room, like 13 and younger, right? And my intent then, I think, having seen that this morning, is to let you know every week, when you come in there on the bulletin, there'll be a rating of the sermon, like it's going to be PG-13 or R, mostly PG-13, but I think there may be a time when the sermon is actually rated R. And if you'd want to know that as a parent then, so that you can talk, either talk to your kids about that or put your kids uh, uh, somewhere else, <laughs> Right? <laughs> Good options. There's always options. So uh, there's three things that we want to know here in this like introductory uh, time that we have together. We want to know the interpretation of the book, and we want to know the players who are the who are the actors in the in the play, and then we want, we want to know the themes of the book. And we're going to spend the most of our time on the interpretation of players, and then touch on the themes because the themes will ripen in the days ahead. First of all, know the interpretation. This is a, one of the books in the Bible that's rarely preached on because. 
there's debate about how to interpret the book. A, prevail, a common view is that the book is about Solomon, who had a, thou, a thousand women in his life, at least a thousand, 700 wives, 300 concubines. My opinion, uh, those are estimates because a thousand is just too convenient as a number, right? I think he probably had... 900 or 1100 or something like that, but whatever it is, he had a lot of women, too many count. So the, uh, one interpretation is that the book is about uh, Solomon's love for one woman, right, before his heart was corrupted with all these other women. And it's, it's a love story about this one, this king with the one true, you know, one true love. The other interpretation uh, is... Um, uh, I'm just going to quote for you so you understand it. The other interpretation is about two men involved in the relationship. What we appear to have in Song of Songs is a dramatic composition, uncertain date, and authorship, and it sets before us our consideration of two different kinds of male-female relationships. The first, which occupies most of the attention of this song, is that manner of relationship in which a woman and a man enter freely into love and sexual intimacy, binding themselves in lasting commitment to each other in a covenant relationship, giving themselves to each other physically, emotionally, in, in joyful abandonment and vulnerability, no reservation, no shame, covenant relationship. So there's a covenant relationship going on, but there's another relationship in the book, the second kind of relationship, and it lurks in the background uh, and occasionally has a spotlight shown on it. Place, there's a male in a dominant power position over the female. And uh, this is the interpretation we're going with, and our belief is that this dominant male is the king, and that he's, this, he's not married to this woman, but he's seeking to draw her into his circle uh, to conscript her as an object of sexual pleasure, probably a concubine, do you see? So there's the king with this woman, and then there's this woman and this other man over here, but this second kind of relationship places the male in a dominant powerful position over the female such that she does not enter into the relationship by, by, by choice, but is a pawn in a male game that has to do with contracts, money, political alliances, uh, power, coercion, and the collection of objects of pleasure. So two different kinds of relationships. A contractual relationship with the king, and the king isn't very happy. You can see it in the picture. It's because he has a thousand women in his life, right? And then there's the covenant, and, and this guy, he has a deep smile. It's just an inner smile. You see it over here. But he, he's wooing and romance is one woman and it's love, and it's, and it's true love, right? So uh, th there's, there's questions uh, in the Bible, then, not only about whether there's one male in the story or two, and we're going with a two interpretation for reasons that become apparent over time, but also uh, there's questions about how to read the book. Do you read the book uh, literally as a love relationship with some pretty explicit uh, sexual stuff happening, or is it purely a metaphor re regarding God's love for people, right? Is it one or the other, or perhaps both, and we will go with both, uh, but I want to share with you why for many, many, for centuries, it was believed uh, that uh, it, it's only a metaphor uh, of God's love for God's people. And this, I mean, from the 5th century on, it was, it was actually literally declared illegal to read the book literally, which I find hysterical. Like, how do you, like, how do you enforce that law, right? You can only read it literally. It's impossible, of course, but there was a great fear on the part of the church that if this book were read literally, it would elevate human sexuality in a way that the church explicitly 
was not elevating sexuality, but was denigrating sexuality, right? In other words, the church has always, sexuality is a powerful force in all of our lives, and the church has always been afraid of the abuse of sexuality and afraid of the power of sexuality. So for a millennia, really, from about the 5th century, at least until the Reformation, the church being afraid of uh, the power of sexuality Either A, didn't talk about it, or B, when it was spoken of, it was spoken of in a denigrating fashion. So you had this one church father early in church history named Origen. He castrated himself uh, so as to kill sexual desire because he thought sexual desire was simply part of his fallen nature. He thought if he could could just kill his sexual desire, all would be well. Augustine comes along, and he had a colored sexual past before coming to to faith, but... uh, in his teachings of sexuality, so afraid was he of sexuality that he began to forbid um, uh, sexual intercourse on certain days. And so this, this dictum began to uh, uh, spread through the church. There's only certain days that uh, a husband and wife can have sexual intercourse. Never on Sunday because that's celebration of the resurrection. Never on Good Friday because that's a re- uh, remembering Christ's death. Never on Thursday because that's the night of Christ's arrest, right? Never on feast days Never on a day when you're remembering a saint, and there were like 120 saints or something like that. So there's a lot of days off the calendar right there. Never on fast days, and get this, never on Wednesdays, no reason offered. Doesn't that crack you up? (laughs) Just, hey, it's Wednesday, so I won't be seeing you tonight, baby. That's the way it works. Um, And so so, uh, all this prohibition was... Uh, was articulated by Augustine, and then he went on and added, and if your motive for sexual intercourse is anything other than procreation, you're sinning, right? So that's, that's, that's the church has this history, and, and d- during the whole time that that interpretation of sexuality prevailed, the, uh, the book was read only metaphorically. Now, so when we ask the question, should it be read metaphorically or should it be read literally, we answer yes, right? It should be read both literally and metaphorically. Let me speak about both just for a moment. First, A, the book should be read literally because this is a manifesto for what real love is. And it's a liberating revelation that God smiles on healthy sexuality. Christians are called to proclaim a resounding yes to sexual expression in the context of a resounding yes to God. In other words, God made you, God made your body, God made you as sexual beings, and it's in this proclamation rather than in the repression of our sexuality and our preaching negative values and rules against it that the goodness of God will be seen by others. In other words, the starting point is God made, you, God made all of us as sexual beings and we shouldn't be afraid of our sexuality, right? In truth, however, there are negatives regarding sexuality. In other words, sex thrives in a context, And the negatives of the Christian life generally only make sense in the context of the positives. So this is clearly true in respect of biblical negatives concerning sexuality. Christians stand against certain forms of sexual activity, and the reason we stand against it isn't because God's a killjoy. We stand against it because we think that sexual activity is for a higher purpose, which is more life-giving than the manner in which sex is used in prevailing culture. Sex is for this building of a lifelong, committed, intimate relationship between one man, one woman, in which complete self-giving is possible. That's God's desire, right? And so sexual activity at the wrong time with the wrong people is, in fact as Song of Songs itself recognizes, destructive, not good. So when we say yes to sex as joyous, is always yes in a context defined by God, the good God who made sexuality, right? Uh, 
Now, important to see as well that if, if we're saying yes to sex, then we want to avoid unhealthy repression. And what has happened throughout the history of the church and culture is that the church, to the extent that we're guilty of repression over here, the, then many things happen, hypocrisy and cover-ups and denial and duplicity and all that stuff. But also the culture looking at the church and seeing repression swings over here to license, right? And if you live in Seattle, you live in a place where it's licensed with, you know, a giant 80 font capital L, right? Lice, like sex, that's where we live. And if you uh, read The Stranger and, or you ever encountered Dan Savage, um, he, he, one of his favorite books is Sex at Dawn, the thesis of which is, and this is what he says, he says, listen, uh, if you've had an affair or slept around or anything like that, you didn't fail monogamy, monogamy failed you. In other words, he challenges the premise that monogamy is the best thing for humans, and to challenge the premise, he goes back and says that, you know, our DNA is very similar to the DNA of the Bonobo chimps, and the Bonobo chimps are decidedly non-monogamous, and they're into, you know, recreational sex. Sex is like playing tennis or something. You want to have a good time, you want to relax, just go find somebody uh, on Tinder or where, you know, however you do that today, you can go, you can do it, right? And so this is a prevailing thesis increasingly in our culture, hookup culture, however you want to call it, and, and so he writes this, and he says, if we would just get over monogamy, we'd all be happy. Interestingly, a biologist wrote a response book deconstructing his thesis, and I don't think the biologist is a Christian. It wasn't a theological book, but he, his, his response to Sex at Dawn is this new title, Sex at Dusk. What's not to love about that? And he says, hey, by the way, uh, he was wrong. We're not Bonobos. And by the way, the, and he, then he goes on, he says, by the way, the Bonobos weren't that happy right? There's all kinds of, uh, you know, rejection and denial and hierarchy and anxiety and stress hormones in the happy, happy Bonobos. So let's get over ourselves here and see that, you know, repression's not good. License isn't good. Well, how do we fight a way through? Welcome to Song of Solomon, right? It's not repression, not license, but another way, God's way. Now, equally true, there's another lens through which we look at the book. The book speaks of Christ's love for humanity. So the book should be read literally, but the book also should be read metaphorically because the book speaks of Christ's love for humanity. The players in this drama represent the choices we make. In other words, we gather the church this morning, and in Ephesians chapter 5, we're told this. The church is the what of Christ? Does anyone know? The bride of Christ. So we're all of us in the room, male and female, all of us in the room, we're bride. And Jesus has metaphors about you know, Christ being the the, the, the bridegroom, uh, excuse me, Christ being the groom and us being the, 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 the bride and Christ coming to, you know, capture us with his love, all that stuff. So we're the bride. And, and, and what happens then is we see in this book a choice that all of us are forced to make daily, actually. We're forced to either be, you know, ravished and wooed by the infinite love of Christ over here, or uh, we're going to allow ourselves to be conscripted and coerced and controlled by, quote-unquote, the world, right? And, and, and so choosing Christ is, is our invitation. And what we see here is Christ woos us, ravishes us, loves us infinitely, sacrificially, unconditionally. We're, we're invited to choose Christ. And, and choosing Christ, what we find is if we choose the right uh, lover, not the world, but Christ, if we choose the right lover, that relationship will 
that relationship will now transform our relationship between uh, men and women and it will enable us to love well in every other relationship. So it all starts here with learning to allow ourselves to be loved by Christ. And as we'll see, it, it, it takes, it's a challenge to learn to allow ourselves to be loved by Christ. So know the interpretation. It's, it's, there's this king. It's a contractual, controlling, coercive relationship. And then there's this woman and she, and she resists this, choosing instead the one who woos, ravishes, uh, romances and loves her unconditionally. That's where we're going. Now, let's then look at those three players in the, in the um, story, Solomon, the woman, and the other man, and see what they all have to say to us and what they represent. So we start with Solomon. Solomon is, in this story, he's the antagonist, right? Because Solomon's relationships with women here in this book represent the antithesis of healthy relationships between men and women. He, this is exactly the opposite of what we're called to in any uh, intimate relationship. Uh, here's what we know about Solomon. 1 Kings 11.3 says that Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines, which were like not wives but available for his pleasure. So 700 wives, 300 concubines. And what's interesting is, is he the king of Israel? Yes. Deuteronomy 17, 17, which I bet you don't know off the top of your head because you didn't read Deuteronomy this morning, but I did, so uh, you're welcome. Let me tell you what it means. Deuteronomy 17, 17 explicitly forbids the king of Israel, not all of Israel, though it's God's ideal that everybody's one man, you know, one woman, but here explicitly the king is forbidden from quote-unquote multiplying wives. So the king cannot, is not supposed to multiply wives. What does Solomon do? Well, a thousand is called multiplying, right? So, so um, why, like why the king, why is the king spoken to and, and we're told directly to the king, don't multiply wives. Here's the thing. The, understand the king, as the king, is a, there's a sense to which the king is called to an exemplary life. In other words, uh, leaders are called to different character because they're setting an example. That, whoops, that's the way it works. That's the way it's supposed to work. Leaders are called to, they're called to this exemplary behavior. And so what is God's reference point regarding marriage? And to know the reference point, go all the way back to Genesis 2, right? Genesis 2 is God's reference point for marriage. This is where God created marriage. Jesus rearticulates the marriage point, uh, the marriage reference point. In Matthew 19, the apostle Paul articulates the same. He goes all the way back to Genesis. Paul goes back to Genesis, Ephesians 5. Jesus goes back to Genesis, Matthew 19. Genesis goes back to Genesis because Genesis is Genesis, right? And so in all three instances, this is what we see. What's God's ideal for marriage? One for one for life. That's the ideal. Now, are we broken in the room? Of course. Some have had more than one. Some are divorced. Some are divorced and remarried. I get it. We're broken. But listen, because we're broken doesn't mean ever that we abandon the reference point. It is annoying to me when people say, oh yeah, I know Genesis 2, wow, you know, all good, but it's so fluffy and, you know, idealistic. We don't live in a Genesis 2 world. We live in a world of Genesis 3. We live in a world of sin. And I go, yeah, we live in a Genesis 3 world, but what are we aspiring to? Genesis 3? No. Genesis 2. We're aspiring. Always keep the reference point, friends. And to the extent that the church has lost the reference point... Uh, we find ourselves 
losing our, what Jesus calls saltiness, or losing our capacity to be light in the world. When we say, oh yeah, it's a Genesis 3 world, we have no moral voice anymore. And so God says to the king, don't multiply wives. Why? You're the example. Here's the other thing. Kings were explicitly forbidden from multiplying wives precisely because they could multiply wives, because they had the power to do so. I mean, look at David. Uh, when David sins with this woman Bathsheba, who was not his wife, but was the wife of another man, all, like he saw her, he wanted her, and if you're the king and you want it, it's yours for the taking. He had, he had a power relation with a woman, and it, we call it today uh, sexual abuse, Right? But the king had that, uh, that power at his, at, at his authority. And so what God is saying to us here, it's not just about the king. God is saying to all of us in the room, listen, if you're in a love relationship, don't use power to win the day. Because power does not generate love. Power shuts people down. This is really important for married people. 19 years ago or so, I just had started here at Bethany. And we had a, uh, a marriage conference that was, was here. It was already on the books when I arrived. And so I went to it. I didn't want to go to it, but I thought, I've got to set an example. I'm the pastor. And so I went to this thing. And uh, so I go, to the, I go to the marriage conference, and it was transformative for, for both my wife and, and I and our marriage. And the best takeaway, I'll never forget, 19 years later, this guy stands up at the very beginning, and he says, communication is not the key to a good marriage. And I thought, what? That's what I've heard my whole life, right? Communication is the key to a good marriage. And then he went on to say, uh, look, the problem with saying that communication is the key to a good marriage is uh, in any couple, you're not equally matched in your ability as communicators. Does this, does this make sense? In other words, one is a better communicator than the other. How many married in the room, just a quick survey, would say, amen, that's true? You find it to be true, right? So, and here's the problem with communication then, as, hey, all I gotta do is communicate more. Really? Well, in my marriage, uh, who's, like, I'm, I'm not boasting, I'm just telling you, I talk a lot for a living and with well-reasoned arguments and that kind of thing, and so I can win verbally almost every time. I got a good, really good batting average winning verbal arguments, okay? And this is, so, what's, what, for years, I would say until this conference, we would communicate. We'd communicate. And then here's what would often happen. I'd ask my wife, you know, a simple question, and she answers it. And then when she starts to offer her counterpoint, then I would say, however, you had said just a moment ago this, and this is contradictory to that, therefore, I win. <laughs> and watch this. Every time I won, I lost. And you know what I mean by that, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, you won. Right. Well, later in the evening, I did not win. <laughs> Why? Because, look, power creates defensiveness and, and is demeaning and people shut down. So, no, Solomon, you, just because you want her, you can't have her. Don't use power to bring somebody into your circle, but love is what is needed in every healthy relationship. So the women in Solomon's court... Uh, I mean, you see the picture of it in uh, uh, chapter 3, verses 6 to 11. Phil read this, uh, this invitation from, his, uh, uh, from, the, from the true love to the woman. Hey, 
it's springtime, and the fig tree is blossoming, and there's flowers everywhere, and the rain is gone, the sun is shining. And you just picture this kind of verdant, you know, spring in California with all the gold flowers everywhere. Hey, come, let's romp through the flowers. I can just picture the whole thing, right? And he's inviting her into this beautiful, lush love. And then when you see a picture of Solomon, chapter 3, uh, coming, uh, this, is, this is how it reads. And I see a cloud of dust in the desert, and the cloud of dust is these men who are carrying Solomon's bed, and it's all covered. They're carrying his bed. And so, subtext, there's probably a woman with him on the bed. These men are carrying it. It's guarded by 60 men in the desert, guarded, dusty, dry, infertile. And why are there 60 men there? They're so that she can't leave. That's why. Power relationship. Hey, listen, every one of us in the room have been hurt by abuse of power somewhere along the way. All of us. And to the extent that we have not received the love that our heart cries out for, there's a wound. There, you know, so there have been studies done about um, monkeys uh, when they're born, and uh, some are given to a kind of a wire monkey that's covered with actual monkey skin, <laughs> but it's not a monkey, and others are given to a monkey, and the monkey then gives a bottle to the baby monkey, and then the other is fed the bottle with a wire monkey. And, the, and look, the one who gets real love thrives. And when it doesn't get real love, like just hormonally, there's lots of cortisol and stress hormones in that little baby, why? Because they're desperate for love and they're not getting love, they're not getting real nurture, they're getting milk. They're getting, like, like I'm get, look, hey, here's a dad. I gave you everything, man. I fed you. I gave you clothing. I gave you a car for graduation, and this is a true story. Car for graduation from high school, trip to Europe for graduation from college, down payment on a house when you got married, and here's the girl. Yeah, I wish you'd just spend some time with me. You don't even know me. You bought me. Your power is not love. And I know it. I mean, as someone, like I read that monkey story and I'm adopted and I wasn't adopted till six or seven months into my, into my life and I know enough about my early story to know I was bounced around a bit and I thought, man, that's tough stuff. That, that creates abandonment issues. Like we're all wounded to the extent that we haven't received perfect love. So we learned then uh, that Solomon represents the world and this kind of love, and I put in quotes, that's wounding. Solomon represents the world. Strong, powerful, seductive, and the world in which you live. You're the woman and you're choosing Christ or the world. First John chapter two says this, don't love the world. Why? Because the world overpromises and underdelivers every time. And from the moment you wake up every day until the moment you go to bed, social media, radio, television, and the culture in which we find ourselves, are sending us a message all the time seeking to coerce and control. And the message is this, you're inadequate. You're not loved, you're inadequate. How do I know? I hear it all the time. I'm listening to just Pandora, which I think is innocuous, right? And I'm just gonna listen and there's free, it's free so there's ads every once in a while. Somehow Pandora knows how old I am apparently and that I'm a male because 
the ad yesterday, I'm just sitting there, I'm listening to some classical, classical music, and along comes this ad. And this is a woman, and she says, man, you know, when my husband was younger, he was a great guy. Lots of energy, you know, happy all the time, good in bed, etc., etc. But now, subtext, he's 60. And I, now I'm listening. Oh, yeah, I'm 62, yeah. Now, you know, what am I going to do with him? He's boring to be around, I'm paraphrasing. Oh, but, you know, thank goodness, we discovered he has low T. So he went to the doctor, you know, all is well. Now, what's that message saying, right? It's saying, hey, 60-year-old, you're inadequate. You're not enough. Not, look, and do you hear not enough? Not sexy enough? Not young enough? Not thin enough? Not smart enough? Not wealthy enough? Not powerful enough? Always. You hear, you hear it all the time. You're not enough, but buy this product and you'll be enough. This car, this brand, this clothing, this lifestyle, this trip, boom, done. That's Solomon. That's the world. Seducing you, not with love, but to control. Over-promising, under-delivering. And the woman then has to choose, right? And the beauty of the story it's when we come to the woman here, now having seen Solomon, we look at the woman. Here's what we learn about the woman. When the woman encounters real love, when the woman encounters real love, she has, that's where she goes. And the real love, of course, represents who? Christ. And what you see in this story is this woman is all of us. And, 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 and this, this woman also represents a strong woman, by the way who has the courage to leave this coercive thing and go for a marriage, a covenant relationship. So she leaves coercion and, and in boldness actually pursues the one who is pursuing her. The woman is pursuing in this beautiful book. Chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 12. She's strong, confident, and her strength makes her more beautiful to him. And then when she feels even more beautiful, she's even stronger. <laughs> And so women are invited into this upward cycle of confidence. And all of us are invited to break free from the constraints of a coercive world and not love the world, instead love Christ. And then, of course, the other man is Christ in this story. Who, who, who ravishes, romances, woos, serves. Sound familiar? Yeah, it is. This is Jesus with the woman caught in adultery, John chapter 8. This is Jesus with the woman at the well, John chapter 4. It's not sexual. It's unconditional, ravishing, infinite love. This is Jesus with the crowds. When it says he looks out on them with compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. This is Jesus weeping at the outskirts of Jerusalem. Hear me, in a world filled with buy me, taste me, use me, become dependent on me, become addicted to me, in a world where we're reduced to nothing more than consumers and turned into objects, products of consumption, into that world, Jesus says this, Song of Songs, chapter two. My beloved spoke to me and said, this is Jesus speaking to you. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. The winter is past, the rains are gone, flowers are on the earth, the season of singing has come, the cooing of doves are heard in the land, the fig tree forms its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance, arise, my beautiful one, come with me. That's Jesus speaking to you, and twice, this is what Jesus says to you. Twice, Jesus says, my beautiful one. In a world that tells you forever, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, you're inadequate and not enough, here's Jesus, and what does he call you? Beautiful. I want to tell you that's amazing. 
When someone looks at me and says, hey, beautiful, I turn around to see who they're talking to. Because I know it can't be me. But can you receive that from Jesus? When Jesus looks at you and says, Peter, you're beautiful. Warren, you're beautiful. Phil, you're beautiful. Can you receive it? Or does something rise up in you? Yeah, no, I'm not. Because you've been told forever that you're not enough. This is Song of Songs. A healing love that so woos, so romances, so ravishes, that in the end, love wins, and we bow to and receive that love and are transformed by the perfect love that casts out fear. Beautiful one. And now you can see why Jesus' heart was broken when he stood at the, outset, or the, or, or, at the outskirts of Jerusalem and he wept just before entering into the last week of his life. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you unto myself. Look, I came, I healed, I turned water into wine, I cast out demons, I forgave sins, I stood by the woman at the well, I stood between the woman caught in adultery and her accusers, I forgave, I saved, I raised from the dead, I wanted to love you and you would not allow it. That's what's at stake in this book, above everything else. Is there a little sex in here? Yeah, there's sex. But sex this way is meaningless unless we start here by receiving the infinite, ravishing, healing love of Christ. So what are the themes? Well, three, with these we close. Three three themes that swim upstream against the brokenness in our world. In a world of misogyny, in this book, this is what we see, God elevates women. Uh, the woman uh, in this book stands against the prevailing understanding of women in the culture of the time. Women were owned, bought, sold, had little to no rights. And along comes this woman, and in the opening chapter, she declares, in spite of the coercive and and, uh, power structure relationship in which she sought and conscripted, really, she says, no, I'm breaking free of that to choose real love. That's courageous. And so she, she's declared this intent to swim upstream against prevailing norms. And when you see this woman, uh, she will not be used. Not even by this lover. No. The, the, if I can paraphrase, she would say this, I'm not cheap. How desperately is this message needed today? Elevating the beauty and power and strength of women. Second, in a world of sexual brokenness, God invites healing. And I'll just note here, and it's significant, that there isn't one of us in the room that isn't sexually broken. Not one. We all fall short, right? And so it's no good for any of us to then elevate one particular form of sexual brokenness and say, oh yeah, this is really, this is brokenness, but not, in the subject's not me. No, no, we're all broken. We're all facing the effects of both repression and license in different ways. And this gift that God gave to humanity, the gift of sexuality, intended to uh, uh, be a reflection and an illustration of intimacy. This gift has become instead human trafficking and sexual slavery and addictions to pornography and infidelity, and sexual abuse, and, and I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Healthy inhabitation of our bodies and our sexuality. Uh, imagine if the church could do this well. What a testimony it would be. We're called to um, live as whole people, body, soul, and spirit, and God invites 
healing in this area. And finally, in a world of fear, God invites us to receive perfect love. 1 John 4.18, we begin with it. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Where do I find this love? In this cycle of brokenness and abuse and control and coercion. When I wake up every morning, the world shouts at me, you are inadequate. <laughs> Where do I find this love? And of course, the answer is Christ. Learning to receive the ravishing, infinite love of Christ who looks at you even this morning and says, you're beautiful. That's where healing begins. We entitled this, um, this series, SOS, Song of Solomon, Help Me Love. And so at the outset, I'm going to invite you to uh, search your own heart and finish this sentence this morning. Lord Jesus, help me love, and then you, who needs to receive the healing love of Christ through you? Help me love my spouse, because our relationship is more like a contract than a covenant, even though it is a covenant. Help me love my spouse. Help me love my parents who are controlling me or who, who have used me or abused me or failed me. Help me love my children who, who weary me. Help me, love, help me love myself because I'm paralyzed with shame and regret and guilt. Lord Jesus, help me love. And as you finish that sentence this morning, I'm just going to invite you to come up and would you... Write prayers, help me love, and then finish that prayer. Please keep it anonymous, if you would. Uh, and then I read these. I come in here uh, tomorrow morning or uh, this, this afternoon or tonight, and I like to read through and see what is God saying to the community. This helps us shape how we uh, serve each other. And feel free to read as well, others who have already written, uh, written this morning. But our desire is that we would become a community bathed in love, uh, having received the love of God now, equipped to love one another and our world in a way that is honoring to Christ. Worship with me. Father, we're thankful that in a world that says not enough over and over and over again, there's another voice. It's gentle. At times, um, a voice maybe drowned out with the cacophony of other voices. But there's this one voice, come away with me, beautiful one. Hmm. Give us the grace to believe that we're beautiful. Broken, indeed. But you see us as broken and call us beautiful. Arise, come away, my darling, my beautiful one. Come with me. Give us the grace to believe you and move toward you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So as we begin, uh, the books are here as a testimony. Help me love, and then you finish the sentence and we'll worship together.